0: We do continue now our studies in this joyful letter. Uh, Several sermons ago, I made the comment that of all Paul's epistles, it is this one, Philippians, that reveals so much of his own soul, uh, the very heart of this apostle. It gives expression to his deep emotions concerning the welfare of God's people in difficult times. And you'll recall that he's writing from prison and has expressed in several ways to them that the time may even be approaching where he will go home to be with the Lord. Very poignant, personal, deeply emotional expressions are in the lines of this love letter to them. Now, beginning at chapter 2 and verse 19 through to the end of the chapter, we're going to go a little deeper, I think, into the heart of this choice servant of God. And we do it this way. You know, I think one discovers a lot about a person by looking at the quality of the relationships that they have to other believers. Two such relationships are set before us this morning in this study. There is Paul's father-like confidence in one of his choice students. His name is Timothy. Then uh, we'll learn a bit about a man whose name is Epaphroditus. By the way, this is the only place in all the Bible where his name, Epaphroditus, is mentioned But as we shall see, it is a most honorable mention. I think that if one term could characterize Paul's heart response to the key people in his life and in his ministry, it would be the word gratitude. In almost every epistle of Paul, the apostle seems to take a certain delight in naming the names of those who helped, those who defended, encouraged, and were willing even to lay down their lives with him in the cause of Christ. He thanks his God upon every remembrance of them. And I want to invite you to give some thought sometime, as I need to do, to those people in your life. That have especially encouraged you in your Christian life. And follow the example of Paul. I'd like to challenge you to name them and then find some way to actually express your gratitude to them before the Lord. I was moved this week by the true story of a little boy who lived in the Midwest some years ago, he was blind. His family heard about an eye surgeon at Massachusetts General Hospital who had, at that time, developed a new surgical technique which was related to the condition that this little boy had. There was the possibility that if the boy could be sent to Boston for this surgery, he might receive the gift of sight. It was a very expensive venture, The people in the church contributed to the cause, and so did some others in the surrounding community. Finally, we understand that all preparations had been made, and the boy and his mother were all packed and ready to go. And as they were saying their goodbyes to the rest of the family, the mother mother noticed that the little boy had his old teddy bear clutched under his arm. The teddy bear had seen better days. Some of the stuffing was coming out through a broken seam. One ear had been chewed, I wonder by who, and an eye was missing. The mother said, why take this old teddy bear all the way to Boston? I'll get you a new one when we arrive there. But the little boy didn't want to go without his little treasure, so he took the much-used, much-battered, much-loved teddy bear with him to Boston. In the hospital, the lo- little boy had his teddy bear tucked under his arm through every experience, even in the operating room. Moreover, through the extended period of convalescence, the teddy bear stayed with him. Then came the day when the doctor was able to remove the bandages from the boy's eyes. The results were absolutely wonderful. He could see. Imagine what it must have been like for the boy to see his mother's face. He had often imagined it, but now he would see her for the first time. And imagine what it was like for that little boy to actually see this teddy bear for the very first time. The story goes that when the time came for the boy to be discharged from the hospital, he was dressed in new clothes purchased for the occasion. His little bag was packed and surrounding him were nurses and other hospital personnel who wanted to say goodbye to this lovable little boy whom they had come to know so well during his time of confinement. The boy was sitting on the edge of his bed, clutching his teddy bear when the eye surgeon who had restored his sight came into the room for a last visit. The doctor appeared busy looking at his chart, as they often do when they're trying to cover up their emotions. And before the doctor could say anything, it was the little boy who spoke. Here, doctor, I want to pay you for helping me. And he handed him the battered old teddy bear the doctor took the teddy bear into his hands, accepting it without reservation. And we're told that for some months after that, if you had gone to the 10th floor of the white building in the Massachusetts General Hospital complex, you could have seen that teddy bear. The doctor had put it in a glass case in the corridor. There it sat, one ear chewed, stuffing coming out and an eye missing. Under the teddy bear, the doctor had placed his professional calling card, and below his name had written these words. This is the highest fee I ever received for professional services rendered. And somehow in this text today, we have several examples of extraordinary gratitude. The Apostle Paul is preparing himself to send his beloved Timothy to Philippi. And this will be no small sacrifice to the Apostle who still remains in chains. Then he would have Epaphroditus leave him as well. This, as you will see, is also a very self-sacrificing expression of gratitude both to Epaphroditus and the congregation at Philippi, For they had sent Epaphroditus to be a comfort and aid to the apostle in the first place. In all of this, we have the example of Paul and these two men, and all three of them teach us, I think, a great deal about the Christian life. A life fundamentally of giving, even sacrificially, to express gratitude for all that God has done. So let's read the text, beginning at verse 19. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus'. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ. Risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Let's pause and ask the Lord to open up some things from this text to our hearts. Oh, Father, we seem to stand so small in the shadow of such men and women in church history. Men like Timothy and Epaphroditus and Paul himself. Men and women who through the centuries of time did not hesitate to take up their cross and follow you. Not counting their lives as dear to themselves. And who for the work of your kingdom and for the greater glory of Christ... With joy and gratitude, esteemed others as more important than themselves and gladly sacrificed their all for you. Help us then to cultivate at least some measure of this same Christ-like attitude in ourselves in light of your son's cross. We ask in his name. Amen. What a contrast Paul sets forth, if you will look at it, between what he says in verses 19 and 20 concerning Timothy. I just have no one like him. There's no one of kindred spirit. And the contrast with what he says in verse 21 about the others. <laughs> they all seek their own interests, not those Of Christ Jesus. It hasn't changed a whole lot in 2,000 years, frankly, of church history. Apparently, there are the Timothys. And then there are, well, the self-seeking others. How kind of Paul not to name them. And perhaps it had even been the case that others had already been asked before Timothy if they would not take up this ministry, this task. And they declined in favor of their own pursuits. Today, we would say, as we search for people, even in our own church, to serve the interests of Christ, that too many are simply unwilling to commit because such a commitment might cramp their style. Not allow them the personal freedom to do whatever they want, whenever they want. And basically the message comes back, I'll pray for you, pastor or elders, but find somebody else. Well, God help us. We need some Timothys, don't you think? Paul says, I'm sending Timothy. I'm sending the best to you. I have no one else, he says, of kindred spirit, that that special phrase there in verse 20, kindred spirit. Paul could give no one that he could think of a higher letter of recommendation. The King James Version translates it, I have no man like-minded. But I have to tell you, the original Greek somehow is even stronger. The term kindred spirit or like-mindedness literally means a man with the same soul as mine. A man with the same soul as mine. This Timothy, the recipient of not one, you'll remember, but two letters that actually make up a big portion of our New Testament, First and Second Timothy. And I went through them this week in this light of this verse. Paul addresses him in those letters in several ways all similar, but they tell us how much these two souls were knit together in Christ. He calls him my true child in the faith. Timothy, my son, he says elsewhere. And I really like, by the time he writes the second letter, he says, Timothy, my beloved son, in whom, Paul says, is the evidence of a sincere faith. And today we would say when it comes to a genuine experience of what it means to be born from above, to be born again, what it really is supposed to mean to be a Christian, we would look at someone like Timothy and as Paul did, we'd say in our own way, Tim really has the real thing. And because Paul knows this, he can tell the Christians at Philippi that this young pastor, he tells them in verse 20, will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. You see, it is genuine concern that marks the true believer and always reveals whether there is considerable growth in grace, spiritual maturity. And there's another whole bunch of people who name the name of Christ but apparently as Paul says fails to walk the walk again verse 21 they all seek after their own interests not those of Christ Jesus how tragic now, there's a golden insight here too i think in this text paul says timothy is genuinely concerned for their welfare because every christian Who cares, I mean really cares, about every other Christian is actually, according to verse 21, serving the interests of Christ. Paul says, Timothy will be sincerely concerned for you. Others I couldn't send because they're genuinely concerned for themselves. And by the time he gets to verse 21, he describes this spiritually mature character trait as serving the interests of Christ. When we're concerned sincerely about all of our fellow believers, we are serving the interests of Christ. To me, it was reminiscent of Peter's lesson when the Lord said, you remember, Peter, do you love me? Christ was perhaps not as concerned with Peter's answer. He asked the question three times, but after Peter responded, the Lord three times said, I want you to feed my sheep. In another place, feed my lambs. Peter, if you love me, you'll have a genuine concern for the flock for which I have spilled my blood. We serve the interests of Christ when we demonstrate genuine concern for others. The Philippians are, by the way, personally already acquainted with Timothy, and they know Paul is speaking the truth concerning him. He says in verse 22, "...you know of his proven worth. He served with me in the advancement of the gospel." You Philippians need someone whose soul I consider to be as my own soul. Verse 23. I hope to send him immediately, Paul says. Here's a, a sense of urgency for their needs. Even as the apostle offers up Timothy. And to offer up Timothy to them, understand, was to sacrifice his fellowship, and companionship for their sake. This really is the supreme blessing of what it means to have others in your life that you would describe as having a kindred spirit, souls knit together in one great love of Jesus Christ, working together in the same cause, the welfare of Christ's church. Now, this other choice servant of Christ, we want to take a look at him as well, Epaphroditus. His very name, translated literally, means lovely, and he is that. I think I have heard my mother on more than one occasion describe someone as a lovely person, a lovely man, or a lovely woman. Epaphroditus' very name means lovely. And he also, I think, is now rising to the status as one, of Paul, one that Paul would consider to be of kindred spirit as well, even though his relationship to this brother has been less involved or of shorter duration than that of Timothy. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, we know nothing more of Epaphroditus than what we can learn here in just these few verses. But he too, like Timothy, is a pattern, serves as an example for us. So let's take a look. In verse 25, we learn that Epaphroditus is a member of the Philippian congregation. He became their delegate to Paul during Paul's imprisonment in Rome. Later in this epistle, we learn that the Philippians were helping to finance Paul's missionary ministry, helping to meet his temporal needs. And apparently the task fell to Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus' task, ordained by the church, therefore sent by God, was to bring this aid and to serve the needs of Paul day by day. Paul says of him, he was your messenger and a minister to my need. And understand, Paul's giving that up. Paul's sending him back. We do well to note that Philippi was about 800 miles from Rome. A rigorous, treacherous distance to travel in those days, not less, perhaps, than six months' time. Then, as we read in verse 26, that Epaphroditus became, in the journey, gravely ill. And long enough for news of his sickness to get all the way back to Philippi, and for the fact that they had heard about it, to get back to Epaphroditus in Rome. So perhaps this man has fallen gravely ill for a period as long as almost half a year. And By the way, to some of our friends who today would teach misguided doctrines about works of healing, I think one should note here that it apparently was not the will of God to do some work of healing by the mere touch of the apostle's hand. Some have asked who uh, are misunderstanding biblical teaching on this. Why didn't Paul just lay his apostolic hands on him and, and declare a healing? Now, it's true that Epaphroditus' life has been spared. His health apparently eventually returns... And in fact, he would be the choice servant of God to carry this very letter back to his home church. But the scriptures tell us why this servant was healed. And it was not through some fantastical laying on of hands or extraordinary gift of healing designated to the apostles. The scriptures tell us why God was pleased to heal Epaphroditus, after a very long and protracted and very serious illness. Verse 27 gives us the answer. It simply says, God had mercy on him. It really is instructive to note that whether God heals a believer in this life or takes them home to heal them forever that all of it is ultimately about God's mercy. I have to tell you, uh, more than once, and even in recent days, as the church of Jesus Christ has lost to death some stalwart servants of Christ, I've often questioned, uh, why would God take a choice servant home when they might have continued? valuable service to the lord i the lord and i have had discussions about this why are some set aside by debilitating illness if not death and and removed from effective places of ministry well in this case before us note that paul writing under the inspiration of the holy spirit does not say that god spared epaphroditus because of his usefulness Or that God spared or healed Epaphroditus because of his importance. But simply that God had mercy. And I think we can conclude a number of things here to help us when we struggle with the ways of God at times. Let me list them for you, the the basic lessons of scripture on this matter. In the gift of life itself, there is mercy. In the sustaining of life, day by day, give us this day our daily bread, there is mercy. In the afflictions of life that some are permitted to endure, great afflictions, sometimes for protracted periods of time, the testimony is that in the midst of it, there is mercy. In the dramatic healing at times of afflictions, There is clearly a mercy at work. And then always remember this. In death, there is the ultimate mercy. As choice servants of God get to rest from their labors and rejoice to hear, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. It is mercy. And to the child of God, each new day comes with fresh supplies of his unfailing mercies. And we may not always understand the ways of the Lord. I certainly struggle at times with his timing. But it is clear, all of us live and only live according to his mercies. The Apostle Paul said on another occasion, that no one should be moved by our afflictions. You yourselves know, he says, that we were appointed thereunto. I don't presume to know the sovereign purpose of God in allowing Epaphroditus to be so sick and to suffer for so long on his godly mission. But I do know that this whole text before us today Is replete with courageous acts of unselfish sacrifice. And that this testimony of this man somehow brings even greater glory to God because of the temporal sufferings that God permitted. The other week we were reminded of Paul telling us that in all things we were responsible to do, we should not grumble. And I thought to myself, well, there's some things that God will ask me to do that, frankly, I like doing. And so I'm not given too much to grumble. But to be able to say to do all things and to do so without grumbling is certainly to exercise faith in the sovereign purposes of God, especially in the midst of affliction. I do believe that Epaphroditus, Timothy, and others would say aloud, amen to Paul's conclusion about the trials of life, that such afflictions are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in the eternity to come. And somehow, God gets even greater glory when we're serving him against all the odds and in the midst of great hardship. Look at this mark of particular Spiritual maturity on the part of Epaphroditus at verse twenty six if there's any proof text in the Bible that says there really is such a thing as homesickness, homesickness, I think the biblical text would be verse twenty six Paul says he was longing for you all now in the original language it's a very strong term today we Paul would say. Uh, Epaphroditus is here with me he's fulfilling his mission he's been very ill for a long period of time and boy on top of it all is he ever homesick he was longing for you all and now I want you to see this and he was distressed not by his own illness do you see that he was distressed because you heard Word got back, all the way back to Philippi, you heard that he was sick. And he knew you would be concerned for him, that you would be burdened for him. (laughs) Epaphroditus, I'll get it right, apparently grew leaps and bounds spiritually when he could be so ill and be more concerned about those concerned about him. That's what's revealed here. Another glimpse into the apostles' most personal feelings, I think, at verse 27. God not only had mercy on Epaphroditus, it says here, but what else does Paul say? He said he also had mercy on me because Epaphroditus didn't die. He had mercy on me, Paul said, so that I would not, have sorrow upon sorrow, as if to say, if with everything else I'm dealing with here, Epaphroditus were to die, God knows the sorrow would have been overwhelming. This kind of partnership in the gospel, this this kindred spirit experience, you need to know it repeats itself over the course of church history. And even in our present day as well. You know there were a number. Any number of very special. Particularly poignant moments during my recent trip to Germany. When we came to the village of Wittenberg. Where Martin Luther pastored St. Marian Church. The same town. The place where he became a professor of theology. And you know set the Reformation fires aflame by posting the 95 Thesis at the University Chapel. Uh, When I arrived there with Jim and with Monica, I don't know if they could detect it in me, but my pulse uh, literally quickened. My heart beat a little faster. Entering the chapel, I noted, and it almost took my breath away, the final resting place of Luther's earthly remains. I stood there at his grave. There on the floor to the right of the sanctuary, the heavy brass plate. But I also noted, directly parallel to it, off to the left of the sanctuary, rested his colleague, Philip Melanchthon. These two men were known to have their several uh, differences. Luther at times. Uh, Wrote that he had to repent of considerable outbursts of anger and probably vice versa in the relationship that he had with Philip Melanchthon. But the historic record of the Great Reformation makes it abundantly clear that the one man could not have done what he did without the other. A deep respect, a kindred spirit, a love for each other far outweighed their differences. Melanchthon was Luther's Epaphroditus. Allow me this brief snippet of church history. Church history is good for you. Melanchthon had fallen ill on a journey, and a messenger had been dispatched to Luther. The story continues, and I quote, Luther arrived and found Philip about to give up the ghost. His eyes were set. His consciousness was almost gone. His speech had failed and also his hearing. His face had fallen. He knew no one and had ceased to take either solids or liquids. At this spectacle, Luther was filled with the utmost consternation and turning to his fellow travelers said, Blessed Lord, how has the devil spoiled me of this instrument? He's cursing the devil for taking away his colleague, his friend his kindred spirit at such a crucial time in history then turning away towards the window luther called most devoutly to god this follows then the substance of luther's prayer as others recorded it that day and i quote he besought god to forbear saying that he had stopped his work in order to urge upon him in supplication in other words as luther was known to do He argued a bit with God and says, look, here I am. I've stopped my important work. Look what you're allowing to happen to Philip. And then it says, with all the promises, the scriptural promises that Luther could repeat from Scripture, that God must hear and answer now if he would ever have the petitioner trust him again. It certainly gives you an insight into the passion of Luther, his love for this man. Lord, do something or I just might not talk to you anymore. As I continue to study the life of Luther's one attribute of God, I continually uh, become more appreciative of, and that is God's forbearance and patience. The narrative goes on. After this, taking the hand of Philip and well knowing what was the anxiety of his heart and conscience, he said, Luther said, be of good courage, Philip, thou shalt not die. Though God wanted not good reason to slay thee, Yet he willeth not the death of a sinner, but that he may be converted and live. Wherefore, give not place to the spirit of grief, nor become the slayer of thyself. But trust in the Lord who is able to kill and to make alive. And while he uttered these things, Philip began, as it were, to revive and to breathe. And gradually recovering his strength was at last restored to health. Melanchthon writing to a friend says, I should have been a dead man had I not been recalled from death itself by the coming and the prayers of Luther. Luther speaks in the same manner, writing to his friends. Philip is very well after such an illness, for it was greater than I had supposed. I found him dead, but by an evident miracle of God, he lives. Or as Paul would say, the miracle of God's mercy, that Luther, like Paul, would not at that time have sorrow upon sorrow. Well, let's reread these final words of testimony concerning this man, Epaphroditus, in verse 28 through 30. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. What rejoicing we have in the record of such men and women who we are indeed to hold in high regard, and in whose example we should follow. You know, a few of you may recall the name of a choice servant of God, uh, Lehman Strauss. For many years, a faithful pastor, an excellent uh, expositor of God's word. His sermons were, uh, years ago, radio broadcasted. And in his latter years, he devoted himself to full-time Conference ministry, the ministry of the preaching and teaching of God's Word. In fact, he was residing in Florida and writing his 19th book at age 86 when he went home to be with Christ in June of 1997, not all that many years ago. Uh, Some of you know I'm a collector of books, and one of the several uh, signed books in my collection I treasure having is Laman Strauss's commentary on Philippians. He uh, personally inscribed in the inside cover the words uh, that read, what a fellowship in your home. Thank you sincerely in Christ, Laman Strauss. But I bring this to the pulpit today as my way of ending our time of study to give you this servant's comments when he studied the same passage of scripture that we've looked at together these past moments. He says this in conclusion. There are so few who devote their lives in selfless service. We are more concerned with our interests, our goods, our getting ahead than we are with the needs of others. Genuine Christian love seeketh not her own. Let no man then set his own advantage as his objective, but rather the good of his neighbor. In spite of these holy admonitions, self-seeking and self-glorifying gain momentum with the passing of time. Few, it seems, are seeking to follow closely in the steps of Christ. And then in a most vulnerable and personal way, to me, one of the giants of this last generation, even my generation, reveals his own heart. And he writes these words, I am reminded of the two frequent occasions when I have been unwilling to surrender my comfort and concern for my things for the holy cause of my Lord. I must recall it to my shame. I read of Demas, who forsook God's suffering, dying servant, because he loved this present world, and of Diotrephes, who loved to have the preeminence among the brethren, but I must hold my critical fire. These men did what I and some of you have done. One difference is that we have had 19 centuries of Christianity behind us from which we should have profited. These centuries have made available to us the holy scriptures, much of which those men never saw. I doubt that the losses of Demas and Diotrephes will be as great as ours. Do I seem to exaggerate when I tell you that the pathetic conditions in Paul's day are magnified in our own, when too many seek their own interests and not that of Christ Jesus. Oh, may something of Timothy, something of Epaphroditus in his character, and something of Paul in us be formed as we surrender ourselves to the working of the Holy Spirit. Father, we know that what made the difference in the lives of some was that your grace was working most powerfully and effectively. And we invite you to do that same work in us. Teach us then how to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow you for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen.